0: If you want to talk about meat we can talk about meat let's talk about meat you guessed it today we're talking about meat but not your standard burger we're taking a look at silicon valley's growing devotion to meat alternatives why the interest who's investing and do these alternatives actually taste good that's today on brainstorm the podcast about how tech is reshaping our lives everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Evram.
1: And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Okay, Michal. So on the podcast, we've talked about tech solving a lot of problems, how it's fighting COVID, how it's helping us to stay fit. It's going to fix our traffic problems. But now we're going to take tech into the kitchen. And I'm sure there's some people out there that would prefer that Silicon Valley and all the mad scientists stay away from their dinner plates. But the argument for innovation in the alternative protein space is growing stronger all the time.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, you know, Silicon Valley loves to say that an industry is ripe for disruption. And when it comes to food, the argument for disruption here goes something like this: one, our population is going to hit 10 billion by 2050. And most of these people are going to eat meat. And two, the carbon footprint from producing all of this meat, it's already huge. It's bigger than the entire transportation sector, if you can believe that. And if we scale up production to feed even more people, this puts the planet in serious danger. So, bottom line, we need to find a new way to make meat.
1: Right. There's some other arguments, too, like these new methods will require less land and water. They're animal-friendly. They may be healthier. One thing I found interesting as we've been doing the interviews for this episode is that the companies that are making these alternative meats aren't necessarily going after vegetarians. They want meat eaters to like their products.
0: Yeah, and one thing I've found interesting through reporting this, Brian, is that you've never actually tried any of these meatless meat alternatives.
1: Yeah, well, I've had veggie burgers, to be fair. I have had veggie burgers.
0: That's like, that's so 2000, come on.
1: I know, well, that's probably the last time I had one. But I don't know, I'm not proud of it, I'm not ashamed of it, I just haven't had alternative meat.
0: Well. Brian, I hope you are alternative meat curious because by the end of this episode, we're going to fix this. You're going to try something new. It's going to blow your mind, I'm sure. But seriously, you can buy alternative meats everywhere now. So I'm surprised you haven't actually tried it. You can buy it at chains like Dunkin' Donuts, Burger King, and even some higher end restaurants and in most grocery stores. So let's pull in Fortune's food expert here, senior writer Beth Coet. She first did a deep dive on this industry back in 2017.
2: Back then, it was definitely much more of a fringe idea. We were starting to see interest from Silicon Valley, which I think was what got me interested in this. It wasn't just food companies anymore that were investing here or trying to come up with new products. It captured the imagination, I think, of people and technology. So that felt really different. And since then, the sector has just blown up.
1: Explain to us what the different options are and sort of the the competing ideas for how to present alternative meat or create alternative meat, because we've all heard about veggie burgers for a long time, but the technology has gone way beyond that as well.
2: So yes, this is not Boca Burger 2.0, right? Like this is meat that's designed for meat eaters. So not it's not trying to capture vegetarians or vegans. And there's there's really two schools of thought. One is the plant-based group. Their strategy is we are going to make plants taste as much as we can like meat. And the other group is trying to make meat from cellular agriculture which is also called clean meat. There's a lot of different terms for it. And what they're trying to do is grow meat from cells. So both are trying to get to the same goal, which is this post-animal economy, but the paths to get there are really different. And the plant-based people think that you're never going to be able to scale the clean meat. Like it's just too expensive. And the cell people think that plant-based, you're just never going to be able to get plants to taste like the real thing, so they're in they're in real opposition. But I actually have never tasted meat that's been grown from cells because it's not regulated yet in the U.S. Um, it's not widely available, so the plant based is definitely just way further along in the process at this point. It's so interesting to see how much money is flowing
0: into these kinds of companies and. Are most of the investors like your normal venture capitalists that are investing in tech companies, and do they see the same kind of exit opportunities that they would see for a normal, quote unquote, normal technology startup?
2: Right. Well, it is funny because I do feel like we are seeing this address like a technology problem, right? Like people view this as such an inefficient process, right? So you know, for every one pound of meat, it takes something like 26 pounds of feed. So. To people who work on problems like this, they think that's like wildly inefficient and we can do this better and this is such a problem for technology and Silicon Valley to to solve. So we definitely have seen sort of very traditional tech investors go into the space. There's a group called the Vegan Mafia, which is basically people who are vegans, who made a lot of money in tech, who've invested in some of these startups. But then we've also seen traditional venture capitalists as well as old school food companies have also backed some of these efforts too. So it's it's pretty broad. And so far, you know, we we saw Beyond Meat IPO. It was one of the most successful IPOs of its year. There's talk that Impossible Foods may IPO in the future and at a valuation of something like $10 billion. So there's definitely money to be had in, in the sector.
1: You mentioned the big companies, some of the big companies that are, are backing some of these startups. So, I mean, are, are they thinking that this can scale
2: Yeah, I think so. And, you know, if you talk to the big food companies, they have a different vision. They feel like if we're going to feed a growing population, we need all of these different solutions. So that's real meat, that's meat made from cellular agriculture, that's plant-based meat, and they can all live side by side in the grocery store. I think the fact that we've seen some of these big food companies like Tyson, for example, get involved has actually given validity to this field, which is a little counterintuitive because when you saw big food companies buy up all these natural food startups, you know, it, they lost their street cred. Here, we're mm-hmm. seeing like the opposite happen, I think. You know, this is still a small part of the market, but it is fast growing. And I think that companies like Tyson, Cargill, they just want to make sure that they are in like one of the hottest areas in the market right now.
0: Okay, let's like get real for a minute here and talk about flavor. And texture. (laughs) That's the big question, right? For people who do eat meat and want to minimize their consumption of meat meat, does meatless meat actually provide
2: a real alternative that they're going to like? So what you're talking about is called the theater of meat. Which is like the sizzle, like when it cooks, like the smell—the
1: pageantry of meat. <laughs>
2: exactly, exactly, and that is you're like that is actually really important for people. And I think this is one area where we have seen a lot of improvement. I think their products have gotten better in that regard. And this is, I think, something where we have seen a lot of adoption from Silicon Valley too. Like this idea that we're going to iterate on this product. You know, we're not going to just like roll out a product, but we're going to have like. Version 1.0 and then 2.0, and they're feeling that not only can we like replicate the cow, but we can actually like do better than the cow. I think that is such like a Silicon Valley mindset, and we've. I don't really love seen to that. eat
1: my meat in beta. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I want it to be ready, you know, for the for the broader market once I sink my teeth in.
2: So you're not an early adopter. That's fine.
1: When it comes to meat, no.
2: Fair point. I think your point is right. Like that is a, a key part of it. And there are a lot of people who would argue, why are we even trying to replicate this thing? Why don't we come up with something that's different and better? I think that there's this bigger question and issue around technology and food, which I'm not sure we has been completely resolved. We've seen this big rise of the natural food movement. People want fewer ingredients, they want to understand what's on the label. I think that's not always the case with some of these products. People have really accepted technology in all parts of their life, except when it comes to food, right? And I I think that that is something that may be off-putting to a lot of consumers.
0: Yeah, I think the reality is that technology has actually been a big part of our food production for a pretty long time, but we just don't really think of it that way. But this is an issue that you raised at the top of the show, Brian, and it's probably a good time now to mention that although there's a ton of hype around alternative proteins and there's plenty of money being invested here, the retail sales of these products is actually still pretty tiny. Roughly 1.4% of meat sold in grocery stores last year was alternative meat.
1: Right, but it's growing fast. And last year, Alan Murray, who hosts our fellow Fortune podcast, Leadership Next, spoke to the CEO of one of the central companies in this area, Ethan Brown, who is the CEO of Beyond Meat. Ethan thinks three things need to happen in order for plant-based meat to really take off in a big way. Let's get it to be indistinguishable from animal protein. Let's get the nutrition to be so far superior that it's absolutely clear to every consumer that this is really something they should be consuming. And third, let's drop the price below animal protein. You get those three things, and I think it becomes an unusual customer who says, "You know what? tastes just like it. Better for me and cheaper, I'm still not going to
2: eat it. Scientists say beef is bad for the planet. But do we really care what those nerds have to say? Yes, we do. Impossible meat made from plants.
0: In the alternative meat universe, which sounds like an awesome place to be, Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat are the big players so far, but there are a lot of startups developing alternative proteins, and our colleague Beth Coet had the chance to learn about a very unusual company that's making meat out of, ready for this, AIR.
1: Air? (laughs) Yeah, air, just out of thin air. (laughs) That sounds like the scam of all time.
0: It's right in front of you. You just can't see it. You can't touch it, you know?
1: Less filling, but does it taste great?
0: (laughs) Well, here's Beth and the founder and CEO of Air Protein, Lisa Dyson.
3: So we actually start with elements of the air that we breathe. And the process that we use is actually very similar to fermentation. So it's like making yogurt, for instance. Then the difference is instead of with yogurt, you'd start with milk. We use the elements of the air, carbon dioxide, there's oxygen, we need a nitrogen source. We also have water and electricity. And this process, again, very similar to making yogurt, then we'll create a protein flour. And that protein flour has a lot of great properties. Uh, really high nutrient dense. Essentially, a lot of amino acids, all the essential amino acids. In fact, rich in vitamins and minerals, including vitamin B12, which is lacking in a vegan diet. You can think about your flour that you're typically cooking with as being very comparable to what our air protein flour looks like. So it's very neutral. And then once we have that protein that's made from elements of the air, then we apply culinary techniques like uh, you know temperature pressure. If you think about taking wheat flour and turning that into pasta, you know, there's different culinary techniques to get there. The culinary techniques that we apply allow us to create the structures that you're used to, the textures that you're used to experiencing when you bite into a uh, nice chicken breast or juicy steak. We're right now focused on demonstrating the flexibility of this platform where we're able to make many different forms. And so chicken is where we're starting. And chicken is what we've introduced to the world. And so you can think about, you know, chicken chunks, you know, chicken breasts, chicken fillets, you can think about just the different forms of chicken as what we've kind of already started showing to the world. But beyond that, you know, we're uh, looking to forms that would be comparable to what you get from beef and pork, you know, something like a steak is the holy grail. And I'm not going to claim that we're, we're making a steak today, but we will be working towards things like steaks and fish fillets and those things as well. Okay, so walk me through actually how this happens. What is the process? You start off with the starter culture, essentially, and you have to feed the starter culture. So you feed it milk in the case of making yogurt or cheese. And the difference, it's a significant difference. And it's also a simple difference is instead of starting with a liquid that the culture is, is basically using to grow, it's gases. So it's the elements themselves, CO2 with the electricity in the water. We split the water to get hydrogen. There's oxygen. So there's these elements that are coming in to the fermentation vessel. And again, another example is brewing beer or making wine. So there's a fermentation vessel and there's a culture and then there's, you know, basically time in the case of making cheese, yogurt, wine, you have uh, the inputs, the culture, and then you wait. So it seems like you could have used this technology to make all sorts of different kinds of proteins. Why me? One of the things that I'm focused on is trying to have an impact in, on this whole climate change issue. Uh, and for me, that actually started in 2005 when I went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And really, as I thought about the huge devastation that all those people ex- experienced, people lost their lives, their homes, their loved ones, and all that was brought about by a weather event. And just thinking about how climate science tells us we're going to have more intense and more frequent weather events that actually do really impact lives. That caused me and a colleague of mine, Dr. John Reed, to form a hypothesis of how can we be a part of creating solutions in the world that help us to do things better. As it turns out, one of the biggest contributors to climate change is the food sector. And the biggest culprit within the food sector is the meat industry. And it's hugely inefficient. If you think about it, it currently takes two years to make a steak. And that's lots of grazing on land and land that's used to grow feed. And so air protein will be able to allow us to grow to meet the growing demand for protein uh, in a way that doesn't require arable land. And so the meat forms that we make would sit in, you know, the meat aisles, essentially. Like this is a new new way of making meat, this air-based meat, a new way of making meat. And we project and plan on it sitting right next to the beef pork chicken that you see in the grocery stores today. So tell me a little bit more about where this idea came from. There was work done in the 60s and 70s by the NASA space program, essentially, that had a different challenge. Um, But it turns out that there was some overlap. And that challenge was how do you feed astronauts on long space journeys? Right. You need a new way of thinking about how you're growing food you know, it needs to be resource efficient, needs to be able to grow quickly in small environments. And one of the key ideas that they had was to use cultures that could grow on these elements of the air that, that, you know, the astronauts were breathing out, astronauts were breathing out carbon dioxide. And how do you take that carbon dioxide, extract it from the air, and then feed that into to these cultures, essentially, so that the cultures then would grow and create nutrients for the astronauts, which the astronauts would consume. And then the carbon from the nutrient would come out in the form of carbon dioxide. And in that way, a closed loop carbon cycle could be created. Uh, and it's actually interesting because if you say, how do you feed people? It's actually the same question as how do you recycle carbon? Because we are a carbon-based life form and we need carbon to survive and we get it through our food. As it turned out, the space program ended, and this essentially was sitting on the shelf, this concept, right? They, they hadn't turned it into a technology that could be commercialized. And so we picked the work up off the shelf and we began working on how do you take this carbon and then turn it into something that people on earth today would love to eat, juicy, delicious meat.
1: Wow, uh, Michal. It's a fascinating story. I think that the technology is really interesting and the origin of it. It also feels like a great marketing story to me because it kind of reminds me of like when Nike Air sneakers came out and you know you were supposed to be running on air, but you were actually running on you know nylon and foam and there was some air and there were like, air is an ingredient in the mix here, but there's a lot more to it.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And it's funny. You know, tech companies love a good origin story, and this definitely gives them one. But okay, this company, Air Protein, has raised a significant amount of money. And do you know how much they've raised, Brian?
1: Why, in fact, I do, Michal. Oh. Yeah. Turns out that they just closed their Series A at the end of 2020, and they raised $32 million. So that's a pretty good start. There's some real enthusiasm about it. And the lead investors are ADM, Barclays, and Google Ventures. So those are some big names. And that's actually a nice lead-in to our final interview of the episode. I spoke to Sharon Murray, who is a Senior Investor Engagement Specialist at the Good Food Institute, which is a group that advocates for alternative proteins.
4: We actually hit peak meat consumption uh, per capita in 2020, and the percent of vegans and vegetarians really hasn't shifted. So the theory of change behind the Good Food Institute is that let's produce the proteins, the meat, the eggs, and the dairy that people love that they'll continue to eat, but let's do it in a more efficient and a more sustainable way. And for us, that is by supporting the industry of alternative proteins.
1: I would love you to just describe the alternative protein industry right now. You know, how big is it? How much is it growing? What's the growth path? What does that look like? You know, just kind of give us the lay of the land on the alternative protein world.
4: We're above 1,000 companies globally. Many of those are within plant-based, which was the earliest segment within alternative protein. But we now have over 70 startups focused just on cultivated meat, which is the most nascent segment of the industry. We're seeing most, if not all, of the large meat and food companies in the world getting involved. And we're seeing increased consumer interest and adoption. So US retail sales and plant-based foods for example, grew about 43% over the last two years, so from 2018 to 2020, far outpacing the growth of retail sales overall. And then we can look at investments and we've seen a lot of growth there. So the industry overall raised $3.1 billion last year, which was three times more than in 2019, and actually about half of all of the private capital that has flowed into the industry since its inception.
1: Wow, that's a huge scale up in investment where is that investment coming from?
4: Most of the capital is still coming from venture capital firms. There are maybe a couple of dozen that are true experts in this area where they're from the start and have grown with the industry, but we're certainly seeing strategic investors. So corporate venture arms of ADM and Tyson, Cargill and others that are getting involved um, in these companies across the segments. One other interesting investor that's worth noting is a sovereign wealth fund, Temasek Holdings, which is one of Singapore's sovereign wealth funds. And for anyone following it, that shouldn't come as a surprise because Singapore has really been on the forefront. Of this industry, seeing it as critical for their food security. And actually the first commercial sale of cultivated meat, so again that's that cell-based meat, took place last year in Singapore.
1: So you mentioned plant-based alternative protein and cultivated or kind of lab-created alternative meat. Which is bringing in the most money, the most investment interest Why does an investor go to one versus the other? So we
4: are still seeing the most money flowing into plant-based. That is the earliest segment to develop. It's the only segment that's truly in stores and in restaurants right now. So that segment saw about 2.1 billion invested last year. And that's compared to about 590 million for fermentation and 370 million for cultivated meat. And then, you know, on the cultivated meat side, I think five or 10 years ago, we all weren't sure if this was science fiction or a real way to feed a growing population. And with having many more proofs of concept, including the first commercial sale last year, I think that's really turned a corner. And I expect to see a lot more investor interest there moving forward.
1: Forgive my ignorance, but I don't really understand the distinction between fermentation versus plant-based and cultivated. What is the fermentation technology?
4: It's really emerged as an enabling technology uh, across alternative protein. We haven't seen precision fermentation used to create a whole meat product, per se. It is being used to create egg proteins. It's being used to create things like gelatin. So its strength is in targeting a specific protein or molecule rather than cultivated meat is really where you're replicating the full cell to be able to create like a true meat product. So it is an ingredient input into meat, but not the full product.
1: And why is it all meat and not alternative fish or pork? Why is it all beef?
4: So when I, I use the term meat, I actually am incorporating beef, chicken, pork, uh, seafood into that term.
1: But it seems like we mostly talk about burgers.
4: Yeah, so I think part of that is because burgers were really the first product that came to market and made headway with consumers. Part of that focus is because it's a lot easier to create minced meat products from a texture and structure perspective. So there are quite a few uh, chicken nuggets and strips and tenders on the market, but we don't yet have like a true chicken breast product replacement and many companies are working on that now. And seafood is interesting in that it's still a quite early segment within this industry. We are seeing investments grow. They grew about four times last year from the year prior and there are many new startups entering that space. So it's a very big white space opportunity that we're speaking about with startups and with investors.
1: I would like to ask you about scaling this. I mean, you also mentioned that the number of vegetarians and vegans hasn't really gone up or the percentage of it hasn't really gone up. So what is the investment case for the people that are you know ramping up their investments in these alternatives that you know lead them to believe that people are gonna buy into this? And then the other part of the scale is how easily... Can we scale the technology itself? You know, fermented proteins, cultivated proteins, how challenging is that?
4: So on the first point of what are consumers looking for, price and taste, always rise to the top. So a main goal for the Good Food Institute for the industry is to get prices and taste to parity with conventional animal-based proteins, and that requires scale. So that really is the case for investors. In terms of the companies being able to scale, so a lot of it comes down to investment capital, especially patient capital and government investment would be quite helpful here. So on the plant-based side, for example, there is equipment that's borrowed from other food industries that's being used here, but it can be quite expensive. So high moisture extrusion machine, for example, which is used in creating plant-based meat, costs about a million dollars, which is quite expensive for early stage startups. Manufacturing facilities that are needed, true commercial scales in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And it takes time to build these manufacturing facilities, can take a few years. So investors that are perhaps used to the kind of scaling that's possible with a software business, as an example, might not quite appreciate what's
1: truly needed here. You mentioned that it would be helpful to have government support. And so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. In general, are, have we seen governments show an interest in investing in this technology to try to scale it and try to you know, meet the needs of, of feeding their people?
4: We haven't seen a lot of government investment yet, so the potentially obvious comparison for us here is what governments have done globally to support industries like renewable energy, like electric vehicles. Private capital can do a lot, right? It can help these startups perform uh, applied scientific research, commercialize their products, create some change, create returns for their investors. Public financing is really needed to do long-term basic scientific research that an entire industry can benefit from. It's just such a strong accelerant. And we really want to see that, especially in the U.S. If we see that funding come through, it can make a real difference in lifting up this entire industry.
0: You know, Brian, it's really interesting. I I hadn't thought about it this way, but Sharon makes some good points. Um, If the food production and meat production in particular is a bigger polluter than transportation. And we're seeing the federal government get involved and try to incentivize you know, companies to move towards electrification. Why wouldn't the government get involved with pushing and incentivizing companies and people to consume more alternative proteins, right?
1: Yeah. And you, you got to think about it like government has all kinds of priorities to juggle. Threats, opportunities, near-term, long-term but, you know, government funding can reap incredible rewards over the time. We saw that with the Internet. And uh, climate change is something that affects all of us. And if there's a way to address that or at least, you know, facilitate possible solutions to it, maybe it should be a priority for government. On the other hand, I think a lot of people feel differently about creating tech that you hold outside your body than something that you ultimately put into your body Whether that makes sense or not, I mean, we all invite tech into our lives with our phones and it dominates what we're doing and holds our attention, but people just feel a little different about swallowing it and digesting it.
0: Okay. Well, I am doing my part to help the environment today, my own little small part. So remember at the beginning of the show, I promised that Brian would try an alternative meat product, which makes it sound so appetizing, uh, before we sign off. So- Brian, did you get my delivery?
1: I did, it just came. I'm gonna tear it open, okay?
0: All right, all right, tell me what you see. It's a burger. It looks like a normal burger, right?
1: Well, so far it does, yeah. Should I just take a giant bite of this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would just, like, what would you do with a regular burger? This is just a burger.
1: I would take a giant bite, because I'm pretty starving, I have to say. Do it. Okay, here we go.
0: Do it. (laughs) He's chewing, he's chewing.
1: All right, I'm not going to say this is the best burger I ever had.
0: (laughs) But it's not the worst.
1: I mean, it tastes, if you just gave me this and I didn't know it was not a real burger, I would just sort of think it's not my favorite burger, but it's a burger.
0: So you can't tell that the meat is not real meat, right? Like that's not the problem. You're just saying it's a subpar burger.
1: (laughs) First bite wasn't my favorite burger bite. Let's put it that way.
0: What about the texture? Because that's like, you know, that's one of the important things here, right? To get that right.
1: I think the texture is a little weird for me.
0: (laughs) Well, Brian, this may be a good time to tell you that it's also got vegan cheese on it.
1: (laughs) Ah, another first for me.
0: Is that the culprit or is it the combo?
1: I don't know. It's hard. What about the onions? Can the onions at least be real onions?
0: The onions are real and the, the French fries are, I think, real. I mean,
1: French fries look really real.
0: All right. Well, I'm sad to say I don't think we converted Brian into alternative proteins today, but, you know, next week maybe I'll send you a the unreal pastrami sandwich Brian which I think you will love. So, stay tuned for that. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world.
1: The Brainstorm podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written by Megan Arnold and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold.
0: When Beth first started saying eradicate cows, I I got really scared. (laughs) Like I didn't realize you were going to say eradicate cows from the food supply system.
2: Which sounds nicer to cows. (laughs) (laughs) But what do we do with the cows if they're not? Anyway, sorry. A little dark.
1: Yeah, we don't want to get rid of the cows.